Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by West Properties Zimbabwe. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Donovan Anthony Chimandamba, the founder and CEO of uh, Nyanza Light Metals. If you enjoy this conversation, remember to subscribe, like, and share. Donovan, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. It's a pleasure to be here, Trevor. Delighted that you're able to join us. Donovan, your, your, your life, um, I want us to start at the beginning, but before going to the beginning, I want us to take a helicopter view of where you are right now. And I want you, just in a, as succinctly as possible, to tell us about these companies that I'm going to run through. You are founder and CEO of Nyanza Light Metals founded in 2011, and you hold that position right up to, up to now. Tell us briefly what Nyanza does. Well, well Nyanza is a, is a manifestation of uh, our ambitions. What we have said to ourselves is that Africa predominantly just mines and exports uh, mineral ores, but uh, there's no one actually taking the industrialization effort to actually say, what can we do to do value addition? So Nyanza is basically that. And what we're doing is taking heavy mineral sands, particularly or specifically titanium, and taking that up the value curve and making a, a, a processing ilmenite to make what we call titanium dioxide pigment. So a pigment is what is used to make uh, paints, industrial coatings. So whenever you paint your house, when you touch your car, the paint on the car, when you look at toothpaste to make it white, when you look at uh, even sunscreen for when you play golf, that's titanium dioxide pigment. Okay, so, so, so that's, that's, that's Nyanza Light Metals. Yeah. And then you also, 2016, you founded um, the Diaspora Infrastructure Development uh, Group. Again, as succinctly as possible, what is that all about? Well, we, we thought we we're in the diaspora and we have capacity to leverage on our own networks, both as, as individuals, but also with uh, institutions. So ideally, what we wanted to do was to focus on infrastructure development. And one of the first projects that we worked on and, and sadly didn't uh, progress was National Railways of Zimbabwe. So in, in a nutshell, it's there to, to effectively do infrastructure development. Fantastic. And then the, the last one, um, I have a problem pronouncing it. Um, what is it? How do you pronounce it? Akin Capital. Akin Capital. You are also founder and chief executive officer of Akin Capital from 2011. And uh, it's a position that you hold right now. What is Akin Capital all about? It's a private equity fund. So we, we started that fund ourselves. Initially, we had Anglo-America in it. They used to own 26% through Sishan Iron Ore Community Development Trust. And the focus there was for us to, to, to seed projects like Nyanza, like DIDG, and that's what, that's what it is. So it's a holding investment holding company that drives all these projects. Fantastic. So we've done this helicopter view, but I want us to go to your beginnings because I think your beginnings have uh, amazing lessons for a lot of people out there. You've been able to achieve all this much, having lost your father at nine years old and your mother when you're 10 years old. Talk to me about that beginning. Well, it's a, I think uh, only now when I look at it, um, 
I see some of maybe the positives that I've drew, I drew out of that. Um, you know, at, at that tender age or young age, it's very difficult to understand, you know, where you will end up at. <clears throat> but being a firstborn, you have no choice. I don't think uh, I had any choice to try and dither around and, and cry myself to, to failure. So it, it was a difficult period. My father succumbed to cerebral malaria. And as we were relocating from Bangura Copper Mine, where he was a production superintendent, my mother then had a car accident, so, so it, which was unfortunate. And we were relocating from Bangura to, to Harare. So instead of going to Harare, we ended up in Masingo. And one of the things that probably we were blessed with, and we only start to understand it today, is that um, you know, family systems are, are, are very important. So from my father's side, you know, all the other siblings were still alive. You know, the firstborn in the family was still alive. He was the last born in his family. Uh, and between them, they, they took responsibilities to, to take care of us. And, and back then it was tough. It was not like, uh, and we were four. And their own families, in some families, they had eight kids or children. So you can imagine, uh, you know, putting on our own burden on those families as well. And, and in the long run, we, we ended up settling with our grandparents in Rosemuto, Bawa, or Nemarund, as you call it. And while at the time it seemed like we've been, uh, you know, sort of like relegated into into back of beyond, back of beyond, and in Zimuto and heading cattle, we learned a lot of life things that that today actually probably you know guide how I, I approach life. So with my grandparents, you learned you know the community aspect of you know one cannot be full when the other is hungry. Um, we, we move as a, as, a, as a group. You don't move as an individual. <clears throat> and that material things in life sometimes probably are distractions to your ability to actually see beyond. And, uh, you know, having been born wealthy, kind of okay, and then all of a sudden in the abyss of life, you, 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 you appreciate that material things are just material. They can just vanish overnight. So, so, so those things probably later on in life... Um, even when I was faced with hardships, I was able to, to, you know, to push aside some of the things that people today might think are hard. But uh, there are tougher things in life than just lack of material things sometimes. So, so you know, so we learned quite a lot uh, from my grandparents. And, and my, my grandfather, uh, funny enough, he worked at NRZ. And you always used to joke, uh, you know, I, shared, I used to share a bed with him when he was much older. And he would say, don't, don't worry, Mzugur. Because you could see, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, while others are uh, in Harare. And you say, no, don't worry, Mzugur, you, your time will come. Just focus on your books. And I managed to get my, my, my distinctions, some distinctions at, at O-level and A-level, you know, operating from there. My mother's side also was fantastic. Uh, you know, everyone tried to chip in where they can. And, you know, despite, you know, with all the families, you will have some squabbles here and there, and you think maybe they're doing certain things because you are, you know, you're an orphan. But then later on, like now, when I reflect back, I realize that they did more than what possibly I can do today for somebody in my situation then. There are certain instances where you've, you've got uh, three siblings, hey? Yep. Where, where are they now? What are they doing? Um, two of them are here in South Africa okay. with me. Uh, one works with me. Uh, the other one has got her own 
a little business she runs. The other one also, uh, she works in marketing. She's, she's married, she's in Zimbabwe. Fantastic. So, so everyone has sort of like kind of mm. found their way, but mm. uh, yeah. The, 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 the point I was trying to make is there are people who walk around blaming their past for where they are. Uh, people walk around with crutches of, I don't have a father. Uh, I'm an orphan. Um, I'm not educated. This is where I am. With your experience, what's your response to that kind of attitude? It, it, it is a very sad situation, and I can actually speak to my own siblings uh, when it comes to that, because it took them quite a long time to get out of that, um, you know, sort of like crutch or everything almost was like because we're an orphan. Um, my advantage was I was the firstborn, so I didn't have any choice or option to actually worry about those things. But it took, I took, it, it took a toll on my siblings for, and I, and I think to some extent they never reached their full potential because they spent quite a lot of time, you know, crying or in that space. And what I can say to people in, in a very bad space or in a dark space is that um, you, you have to find a mechanism to stop asking yourself questions about the dark space. You've got to find yourself immersed in the future, in what you aspire to be. And if you can load your, or you know, sort of like have your mind 90% of the time <clears throat> just talking about what you want to be, what you want to be instead of the misgivings or the misfortunes that you are facing, it is easier to, to, because you end up being a result of what you think. What you think is what you become. So how have you dealt with that yourself? Because you have a double burden in a way. You have to lead yourself in that space to try and avoid going to those dark places. You have to provide support for your siblings to not to go to those dark places. How do you deal with that double challenge yourself? How have you been able to, to do that? What advice would you give to people out there? I haven't been perfect, Trevor. Um... It's very hard and it's almost, you know, you, you, you construct solutions on the go and they evolve as you engage with the, with the situation. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, having lost parents, it's probably one of the worst things that can ever happen to anyone. But then the sad part that comes with that, or the, the unfortunate part that comes with that is your ability to empathize sometimes becomes very difficult. So when people come to you with a problem, you look at it and you say, come on. Are you serious? There, there is worse than yeah. this. You yeah. can't really come to me crying about this. But the reality of the world is that um, everyone has challenges in different ways. So when I was dealing with such issues, especially with my siblings, mm -hmm. I probably took a very hard road you know, on them. And maybe I was of not much help to them because I kept on saying, stop being a sissy. You know, let's get on and move. Instead of uh, spending more time empathizing and understanding exactly, you know, what they're going through and trying to hold their hands. So, but then eventually you, you, as you grow, you know, it comes around and you soften a little bit and, and, and but it's, it's, it's on the go. Mm, wow. So um, you're talking to somebody who lost, uh, I lost both my mom and my dad uh, three years ago uh, through COVID. And here's the difference between you and I. I. I lived with them for 40, 45, 50 years. You didn't have that opportunity. Speak to me about that space. You know, I, I was nine when I lost my dad. And um, 
you know, I've got a few memories. Oh, I, it's, it's quite a bit, but I've got a few memories. And um, my younger sister was one years old and has no memory at all of what. And when we lost our mother, she was two. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's uh, you hold on to the few memories that you have. Um, but then if I look at you, your story, when you say, you know, you, you, at least you live quite a bit of your life with your parents and, uh, you know, it's still sad to lose parents. And it's, I think it's even worse when you have so much memories because your life is actually, it's almost entangled in a, you, you, your, you, your life is, 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 has been built up around having, um, your family around. So I think you, you can't say because we were younger is different to, in fact, you might have more painful feelings because you have more memories than, than we have. It's deep, isn't it? Because uh, the way I look at it and the way that you look at it is essentially dealing with two different things. So maybe we can't compare them. But anyway, let's leave that painful space. But I think there's a lot of lessons for a lot of people out there. And I want you just to go there because of what you've been able to achieve. And I want us now to go to the companies that you've been able to start and run before then we'll uh, go uh, later on to look at uh, your your choices as to what you you the education that you went to. Let's start with uh, the big one, um, which is uh, Nyanza Light Metals. And f I want the vision from you. What's the vision, and where did the inspiration come from to start um, Nyanza? So, so I, th I think it's a in terms of aspiration and vision, it's it's connected to a whole lot of different things around me. Uh, one of it was, um, I felt that we, we have to have people in our generation that build things. Uh, one of the reasons why I did industrial and manufacturing engineering was purely because I just aspired to be a person who builds manufacturing things. So, so that was in me. And fortunately I worked through my career where I went through engineering, manufacturing, ran operations, then moved into investment banking then ran a fund and then came back to my passion. So, so Nyanza was born out of just saying, we as Africa, I mean, if you take titanium, what we're looking at, mm. we, it's mined and exported at values as low as $200 a ton. And then we import back titanium pigment, which we use in paints at $3,000, $3,500 a ton. So if you look at Africa, I mean, we... Before you go there, I want, to, I want you to help us with uh, your line of products. Line of what, yes, what, what are these line of products? And then we can go into yeah. uh, the value addition and, the, and, and what comes out of it. It's, it so it's, uh, it's called titanium dioxide pigment, mm -hmm. primarily used in making paint. So 40 to 60% of your paint is pigment. So we're just the product behind paint. So when you look at your architectural coatings, which is when you paint your house inside or outside, when you look at, uh, so we call those decorative uh, coatings. If you look at industrial coatings, which is, for your ceramic, if you look at your coffee mug, uh, look at plastics and papers being painted white, that's titanium dioxide pigment. Look at your car, that's pigment. If you look at toothpaste, that's titanium dioxide pigment. If you look at milk for it to be white, I, I grew up in the rural areas and I know very well that the milk is never, was never white. But you come to Woolworths and you find milk white. And you ask yourself, how did it become so white? It's titanium dioxide pigment they used to whiten the milk. So, so it's used in a wide variety of, of industrial products that touches every day when you wake up makeup for the women. Mm. It's, that's titanium dioxide pigment. 
So everything we touch and we move, you, you close your wearing for them to have color. The ink that they use in the, in the coat, that's titanium dioxide pigment. So, so when you start looking at some of these industries and you go to, to the DuPonts, the BSFs, you, and they're making, they're turning over billions of dollars and you wonder in what? Mm. But here, all we know is heavy mineral sands mining. We know lithium mining. We know, you know, copper. And, but we, we are nowhere close to where it actually touches us in real life. And the value gap there is huge. And that's all we, we're just trying to say that for me, my legacy So you is are that, in that value gap? Yes. Is that what you're saying? And you you do it all here. Um, what's, what, what's, where where do you do your manufacturing? So so in Richards Bay. So we're in the special economic zone in, in KZN. Uh, we 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 use locally mined or regionally mined uh, ilmenites, uh, which is uh, titanium dioxide bearing uh, mineral ores, and then we put it through a chemical process. Uh, and out of that process, we precipitate and make titanium dioxide pigment, treat it. And that's what it is. And 85% of that, it goes into the global markets. 15% is for, for local and, and regional consumption. And you're saying at the present moment, um, you are employing, or rather at full uh, potential, 850 people, um, indirectly 1,200 people, all based in, uh, in Guazul Natal? So, so we're going through the construction uh, period. It's going to take us about 36 months to get to the end. Uh, it's a $650 million project, so it's, it's quite sizable. And with the US dollar rand exchange rate now going crazy, you know, you're talking 12 billion rand, moving from 7 billion rands a few years ago. Um, so at full capacity, we'll have 850, about 846 direct, permanent, skilled and semi-skilled uh, people. Uh, and then around that, we will subcontract things like engineering maintenance, there's logistics, there's catering, there's other services around what we do. And even when we say 1,200, I don't think we actually reflect in the full numbers. But what, what Nyanza does is a typical uh, catalyst, a catalytic project. It just stimulates the local supply chains. It stimulates uh, the local communities and entrepreneurs. And they have something to to, you know, you have a local economy that's created by... Around, uh, around Nyanza. Yeah. yeah. Donovan, we'll take a short break here. We'll come back. And when we come back, I want us to get into a big number that you've mentioned, which is 600 million US dollars for this enterprise that you, that you are building. So please don't go away. Join us after this break. What I can say also about capital raising is that um, the big chunk of it lies in trust. It, at the end of the day... People invest in to our conversation with Donovan Anthony Chimandamba, the founder and chief ex executive officer of uh, Nyanza Light Metals. So before we took a break, uh, um, Donovan, we, we, we were just touching on the 600 million 
dollars that you need for the mineral beneficiation and the manufacture of chemicals. How much of that has been raised? How much of that are you still raising? And what, what lessons can you share with our viewers in terms of capital raising? Um, if you could break that down, down for us. <laughs> you know, capital raising is one of the toughest things. Uh, and what I'll start off by saying is that um, the biggest marketing job comes when you're trying to sell your project. Um, <clears throat> what, we, what we've done, and fortunately through my experience, uh, I've got a, almost an overall understanding of manufacturing, operations, but at the same time, I've worked in, in, uh, in the DFI space, or so development finance uh, funding space, uh, running project finance, private equity, and venture capital. So, so I can connect the two worlds and speak both languages, uh, uh, and that helps in trying to sell the project. Now, where we are in terms of the $600, $650 million is that um, to develop such a project, you've got to go through certain phases. So the first one is what we call feasibility studies. And we've spent more than $30 million on, you know, some would call it research, but it's hard lessons. You're out. giving me heart attacks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, in those $30 million that we've spent in that $30 million, we effectively trying to build a bankable project that speaks to the very important uh, investment philosophies or principles to institutional investors. A project of $650 million is not for, you know, you don't go to your family friend. and You, you have to speak to uh, large institutional players. And large institutional players, what they want to see is, especially for Africa, is value addition. So not just mining and exporting, but doing something like that. They want to see local job creation. They want to see local communities being integrated. They want, they want to see us building more advanced, uh, you know, technological uh, uh, projects. And if you are able to put all of that and also embrace these days, you can't do anything without talking about ESG or environmental performance. If you embrace that, you start to attract the right players. So today we have, we've been fortunate in the $30 million, we have attracted people like Africa Finance Corporation out of Lagos. We've brought in Afri-Exim Afri Bank, Africa Export Import Bank. They've funded, they're part of our core shareholders as we speak. And I can't disclose one of the banks sure. that we are busy signing, but it's, a, it's mm. out of Washington, D.C. It's a large uh, international finance institution. They're also coming on board. And then outside that, we have a lot of uh, private equity and sovereign wealth funds now coming on board to complete the equity side. So we have all the players that we need on the table. What we are busy with is ticking the boxes. So the environmental permits, yes, operating, mm. you know, all of that. And those are the conditions they want to see fulfilled. And we hope to have fulfilled all of those by end of September this year. While we're doing that, we've already now established our EPC contractor. We've appointed one of the... EPC? In, in, sorry, I, I sometimes <laughs> I get lost in my own world. Slow down. <laughs> I keep saying so it, people, yeah? It's uh, the engineering, procurement, and construction contractor. Right. So the guy who actually builds the plant. Okay. So we, we, we've appointed uh, a, a contractor out of China. They've built 17 of similar plants in China. So, so that has helped bring in and inspire confidence with the DFIs in terms of uh, what we're doing. Um, what I can say also about capital raising is that um, the big chunk of it lies in trust. It, at the end of the day, people invest in people. Um, I can be as smart as a 
can be, but there are people who can be less smart and do much better than I am. Um, so one of the biggest things that you must, must always do that sells the most is just being honest. When there's a problem, you're just transparent. Do not, don't bear the problem and try and hide it. Just be transparent. And sometimes answers come out when you discuss more. So many people go into a cocoon. And I learned that the hard way when I was running Vesuvius uh, International Operations. I started off as a young engineer and I thought everyone employed me because I'm smart and I must have all the answers. Only later on I realized the more I was hiding stuff, the more I was suffering. But when I started opening up and communicating more, I got more help and in fact, I started progressing a bit better. So, so that's probably one of the biggest things when you're trying to sell your project. People invest in people and people, when even you are failing, they don't care about your failure. They care about your honesty and your ability to continue to stand up. And your perform. integrity. Your integrity matters. Mm -hmm. And um, when, when would you be at peak? When do you expect peak to come in, in terms of production, in terms of the vision that you have for this uh, establishment? I think we, we've now built a platform. People can't see it really. I think what you're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's taken us 12 years to get here. I was 31 when I started. I'm 43 today. You know, so, and through the journey, a lot of people have left. Uh, others call it white elephants. Uh, and, and rightfully so. 12 years is not a joke. So what we have done... What has kept you going? Why is when everybody else is walking away? Can, can you let us into that? It, it goes back to losing parents when I was a kid and just seeing the future and not seeing the problems that surround you. So that's, that's every time you, there's a problem, you accept the problem, but you should not, you should look at it by saying, okay, maybe this path doesn't work, but what other path can I, can I establish for myself to get to where I wanna go? So the goal and the vision never change. The big picture The big changes. picture never changes, but uh, the strategy and the actions that you execute along the way, they should change. And strategy must not be static. Dynamic. Yeah, so, so that's, that's how I, I look at things. So you, you say we're seeing an iceberg, which is an iceberg, a tip of the iceberg, rather. Um, what, is, what will this look like when the final things? If, if we do get it uh, right in terms of, if we get what we want, what we aspire to be, what we think we've built is a platform that can be replicated in many places across the continent. Uh, we're big on value addition. That's what we want to do. And the skills we've developed are not necessarily for titanium or mineral sense. It's skills that say, let's take primary raw materials and take them right up the valley. Which is a cry for the continent, isn't it? That's yeah. just what we ought to be doing. Yeah. So, so if we get it right, we, we think over, you know, 2030, we should be, we should be very close to staying at $2 billion worth of projects. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a big ask, uh, but the first one is always the biggest challenge. Yeah. So once you have that going, and with the banks that we have, and, and this is also important, the type of money you have can make or break you. So when you're in our phase, private equity is very, private equity is very aggressive. So one has to be careful in terms of private equity because they're in for the returns, time-driven, whereas development finance institutions, they're patient, they're more about the, 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 the development impact, the long-term, so, so, so desperation can get you with the wrong funding and it can 
derail you from your ambition. So, so there's a lot of combination of things that we, we think, but we think in 2030, we should be staring at a, a $2 billion portfolio of uh, projects. Mm. Talk to me about the, the founder's dilemma. <laughs> you see what people don't see. You see what bankers don't see. You see what private equity people don't see. You, you sleep with what you see. You've or, got or rather not. <laughs> <laughs> or rather not. How, how is that space? How lonely is it? It is, it is tough, Trevor. It is, um, you, you know, the biggest problem that you have, it's make, keeping your team and followers inspired, energized, and believing in what you're trying to do. And it's easy when things are working. Yeah. But it's not easy when, when you remain hungry for too long. And I think one of... Have you been hungry? Of course. Okay. I'm, I'm, metaphorically, but... Uh, no, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe right now I'm hungry, yeah. but uh, that's a different yeah. story. But, uh, when, when you've been hungry, talk yeah. to us about that space. You, 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 one thing I learned is um, never let pressure dictate the decisions you make. It's very tough. It's easy for me to say. It Don't again. make sh a long-term decision based on short-term pain. Is that exactly. what you're saying? Yeah. So, so if you do need to take some haircut, if you do need to take some serious, drastic measures just to remain there, do take them. But do not uh, succumb to the pressures of today and forego the vision that you have. Fantastic. That's a powerful one. On that score, we will leave um, uh, Nyanza and move on to... Uh, DIDG, the, uh, uh, you are the founder and chairman of uh, the Diaspora and uh, Infrastructure Development. Talk to me again about the vision and the passion, what it is that you're trying to do. Um, you won a $400 million um, uh, contract to refurbish the NRZ inf infrastructure. Where did this come from? So, so that, that was probably one of our most daring and bold challenge. Uh, I thought Nyanza was huge. Uh, Nyanza, no. Nyanza is huge, <laughs> but uh, each project is its own. Sure. So this one, we're moving into geopolitics. And, yeah. Uh, um, because you're, you're looking at uh, uh, privatization of a parastatal. So NRZ was or is the biggest parastatal for, for Zimbabwean government. And what we went in there with was to say to the Zimbabwean government, give us NRZ, we run it on a concession basis for 25 years, you give us no security, we raise all the capital to, re, to refurb, uh, reinvest in it, and we make our money out of that. Um, and, that and everyone looked at us and said, you want to take NRZ to make it your, your own? <laughs> and I think that was probably the biggest challenge that we never, because we're thinking commercially, we're thinking, look, we can do this, and... Um, we knew exactly, if anyone goes to NRZ and looks at it, the numbers don't make sense. Everyone thinks we're mad. Because if you look, if you approach that from a standard approach, there is no money at NRZ. But we have a totally different strategy and view of how this thing was. What was that strategy? We looked at NRZ as a, as a, as a midfielder. If it's in soccer, you say this is a midfielder. So if, if the region wants to defend or score, the midfield has to work. So if we're going to make money, we have to make money through being very good defensively or strengthening our defense or being strong at scoring goals. 
but we are the midfielders. We are not the defenders. We are not the goal scorers. Right. So, so, so it, it, what that means, it means you go outside and say, for me to make the region, the Sadak region score and defend against competition, what are the things the midfielder must do? And when they score, when they defend, I make my money. Mm-hmm. We are not going there to say, as the, def- as the midfielder, I must defend and I must score. Mm. So everyone looks at the NRZ, looking at Wange, Zisco, the local dynamics. There is nothing there. Mm-hmm. We went into the region and developed roots, corridors, and relationships outside. And this became a necessary connector within the region for pit to port strategy or port to pit. And that's where the whole game was. But wasn't that the original idea in any case, that NRZ would be the hub? Well, Sister John Rods, yes. that's what he did. That was the original that's idea. That's how he did it. Yeah. But not what we Yeah, assumed. I know. Yeah. So that's, and we were saying, let's go back to the basics and make Zimbabwe important in the South Corridor Rail Network. And we must find ways of making money through that. But to sit there and talk about, we're going to be moving local bricks, we're going to try and restart Zisco still going to try... Those are all, they are gone. Those are industries of the past. They and they're small too. It's, it's, uh, you're putting blinkers and you're limiting yourself. So talk to us about the pushback that you got. I think, uh, you know, when you start getting, I have to find. Uh, you're, not, you're not trying to be <laughs> diplomatic. It's all right. But, but I'll give it to you. <laughs> okay. let, me, let me try my best. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think, first of all, no one, no one wanted it because they couldn't understand. But, you know, it's, a, it's like that proverbial thing where when there's something lying on the floor, no one touches it. Yeah. The moment one picks it up and tries to make it his, everyone Everybody comes out it. of the woodworks and say, no, but why are you? I can also do it. And so there was, there's, there's the local gatekeepers every time who just emerge from nowhere and all of a sudden they also have a plan. Um, that was one. The second thing was, I think ideologically, the the government was still stuck in saying... Socialism. This is ours. This is ours. Are we we seriously giving it away? As opposed to saying, no, we are now allowing or enabling for this asset of ours to generate or stimulate the local country or the economics. The regional economies. The regional economies, for that matter. So that was that. Then, But from our side also, we learned quite a a lot, and it's it's helping us today. Um, We... We were not, I think we were naive. Um, we, we thought money, technocracy, understanding the strategy is what matters. And relationships, we knew they matter, but we didn't really know what relationships mean. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a saying, uh, uh, may his uh, soul rest in peace, uh, 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 Lieutenant uh, General um, S.B. Moy. Yeah, he, he really took a liking on us, and he liked the boldness of our ambitions. And and he he, he said to me, uh, I was sitting with him in, in Gaborone one time. He says, Donovan, you know, you are there, I'm here. They are there. So I, I was trying to understand what does he mean. He says, you see, when you are doing something like you are doing. Everyone, even the ones that are against you, they are there on the table already. So you can't wish them away. What you can do is spend more time in trying to see how you can limit their distraction, how you can accept and concede in certain ground, whether you like it or not, but in the interest of the whole thing moving. So what you meant there was you are there, 
They are there. I'm here. I'm here. We all have to find ways to make it work. And if you think your own positions are the ones that can make it work, the others are not invested in making it work. They're invested in making sure they it get, works for them. It works for them. So we were naive when we started DRDG because we, I mean, we, we, that was one part. The other one, which is quite important actually, and I'd like to share this with sure, you. Sure, absolutely. There, there's something called the prayer. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about praying to God. Uh, yes, you must. But, so we, firstly, when we got the award, well, it was canceled in cabinet, so in Gabby's cabinet. 12th September, it was my birthday. And I, you know, at that time, many people were calling me thinking that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be suicidal or something because they knew how much we had invested into this. And then uh, between 12th and September and 16th October, we forced the matter back to cabinet. It was approved. And everyone asked, what happened in between there? Well, I got onto a plane, went into Zimbabwe, I said, I'm not leaving until I get this, I turn this ship around. And in that process, we established something called the prayer. Every, we were trying to get to, get to the pre President Mugabe because we knew if he could hear our story, he would change his mind. But to get to Mugabe in that environment, to get to any president for that matter, there's always gatekeepers. And where we were getting it wrong was always trying to get to his office directly. So it's a, it's a natural road where all the gatekeepers are. And you, 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 <laughs> you find them waiting for you. <laughs> so you're not going to progress. Yeah. So in that process, then I went everywhere. I went to the military. I went to intelligence. I went to... Then eventually I met, uh, and again, we saw a recent piece, uh, A. Marshall Perrinsky. So I, I was trying everyone I could see. So I went to A. Marshall and he says to me, and I'm telling him a very serious matter here. He says to me, um, Donovan, you need to go and pray. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, these are the guys running the country. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've just given him... I've just downloaded everything. This minister is doing this. this and he's is, telling me to go and pray. He's telling me to go and pray. <laughs> so, but with respect, I just kept quiet. I said, ah. so he phones his um, PA. Uh, can you give me the uh, father's number? He needs to go and pray. So I get the numbers and I, I leave. But my flight is at five. And I'm trying to also see other ministers and people in between. So I tell my driver, I leave my driver with my phone. Uh, so, so just out of respect and curiosity, I just said, look, I don't want A. Marshall hearing that I never called the father. So let me call father just to say uh, I'm Donovan and uh, I must pray. And then he didn't answer, but I left my driver with the phone in the car. And then I went to see other minister. Then when I came back, he says, no, father, I just called us. He says, no, he's here. Dombushawa Theological, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's conducting his lessons there. I'm going to stop you there. And uh, we will continue after the break. Um, don't go away. Um, join us after the break and uh, hear the kind of prayer that Donovan prayed. This is the guy who prays with the president every morning at quarter to six and, uh, and when he goes to bed.
back to our conversation with Donovan Anthony Jimandamba, the founder and CEO of uh, Nyanza Light Metals. Nyanza Life Metal, the Light Metals, let me get that right. So the father res- uh, returns your call. Yes, yes. Talk, talk to us about what happens thereafter. So, so the, my driver then says, well, father is by in the avenues. So I, I, then I said, okay, let's go there. So I get there. Uh, surprisingly, everyone there was expecting me. Oh, do you watch my number? You are here to see father. And I'm thinking, okay, hang on. <laughs> is my prayer that public? That I need? <laughs> it's been answered. So I get there and then I, we sit and uh, I shall not disclose his name, but we sit in a open, um, one of the open areas. He comes, he was, he was conducting a lecture at some University of Zimbabwe, theological. So I sit there and then I start talking to him and then I realize, no, this is not a prayer. This is the guy who prays with the president every morning at quarter to six and, and when he goes to bed. So what uh, A. Marshall Prince was saying, for your story to get to the president, don't try and go direct to the president. Go and speak to father. Father is the only person who has a one-on-one conversation with the president every day without any disturbances. So Father then says to me, do you have any letter that I can share with the president? Mm-hmm. That's when I realized that uh, what a prayer means is sometimes to get to Trevor. Maybe don't stop phoning Trevor. Maybe phone his gardener. His gardener when Trevor is unguarded, who say to Trevor, ah, there's this guy who's been telling me this. And Trevor will actually listen relaxed. That's what happened. And two days later, that was on a Friday, on a Monday, the president called his cabinet. Says, I have now received information contrary to what you guys have been telling me. <laughs> and then the whole cabinet went up saying, we support the project. We're just doing our DD. Wow. That's how it got, it got approved. So that's the prayer. So I think the lesson there is what we learned is Sometimes we invest too much in direct confrontation and effort and never see the other easy path. I've never shared this prayer with anybody, um, but now that you've mentioned this, I'm going to share the prayer. Um, when we were looking for a school place for our daughter, we tried to call um, secretary to the headmaster. We tried to call the headmaster. It didn't work. Until somebody gave us the number to the security guard at the gate <laughs> to the school, we called the, secu- the security guard and he said, yes, the headmaster is here and I can arrange that you come and see him. We went, we got there, we didn't ask for the headmaster, we asked for the security guard who directed us to the headmaster's office, office, office. Cut a long story short, my daughter got a place at that school. That's the prayer. Wow. So, so I call it the prayer because A. Marshall so he said, go and pray when you had a serious matter to discuss. But if I had been cocky or arrogant, I would have not bothered making that effort. Be humble. That's another lesson. Yeah. So where is the project now? Um, so we, you know, COVID happened. Uh, well, once we got the contract, we delivered trains. We delivered uh, 14 locomotives, 200 wagons. Uh, that was in 2018. Um, uh, and then a new minister came on board. Again, he saw rest in peace, uh, 
Pigimatiza. Pigimatiza. And and what Esbimoy was saying is that they are there, you are here, they, you know, we already delivered some trains. But when Pigimatiza came, he had obviously other interests, uh, you know, in terms of maybe how you wanted to look at NRZ. And uh, from where we sat, he didn't believe that DIDG had the capacity. He was stuck in the mind that this is a project that must be done by large internationals. But what he couldn't see was that the banks were willing to take, were backing us because they understood our strategy and they felt it is totally different to what the transnet of this world or the major players are putting on the table because people were looking at Zimbabwe. Mm, we you were are looking, looking at, at the region. What about the allegation in response to this, that the trains were of the wrong specifications, one, mm. two, that you had fallen out with their, your, your, your partners who were, who were trusted or whatever. Do, do you mind responding to those two no, allegations? No, no, sure. I mean, the first one is a funny one because the trains, we, 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 we brought them there. They were sitting in Blois or Chantignac. So people were saying they don't fit on the rail and yet the trains were outside. I mean, uh, did we fly them in? So that was one of the allegations. And then obviously there was der derailments elsewhere, not even our trains. But uh, those derailments, everyone would just say those trains coming from. And, and derailments was a, was a reflection in terms of the state infrastructure or where the infrastructure was at. So, so that, I don't think there's much to say other than, you know, it was just, it was just all trying to, to paint a certain picture. What about the fallout with uh, the partnership? Now, the fallout. So this is something we also learned. So Gabe leaves. New uh, dispensation, dispensation comes, in. comes in. We had the support from the president, but the bureaucrats and the, you know everyone has got their own angles. They are there. They are there. <laughs> so we only we only considered a few people. We didn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So also on this side, dispensation changed. Uh, new minister for public uh, structure, new board for Transnet. They freeze everything what they can do. So Transnet ends up in a situation where they can't really make a decision in terms of investing. But it's something that they can't say publicly because this is what they are supposed to be doing. So we end up in a situation whereby, on one hand, we have a partner who's going through, because now they are having these commissions of inquiry, and, and that becomes uh, juxtaposed on our own process. So we were trying to decouple ourselves and rearrange our, our arrangement such that they are a contractor. Because the funding was to DIDG, by the way, by the banks. They could not touch some of these institutions because of the issues they were going through. But people were not seeing that. They were, they were looking at... At the partnership. Partnership. But then it was used, it was strategic because it was then used by, on the other side, the other people who had other different interests. To torpedo the whole thing. To torpedo the whole thing. Is it dead now? Is it in court? What's happening? No, so we... we we, at that time, we, we lodged a declarator. Okay. We didn't prosecute, but a declarator is simply saying, you know, we feel this has been done unlawfully. We, the damages are of $236 million. Um, <clears throat> we spent a significant amount of money doing the feasibility, putting, you know, raising all this capital is hard. Getting the trains to Bulawayo? We got the, we went and negotiated with those trains, by the way. NRZ was able to jump from about 1.8 million to about uh, almost 3 million tons 
because now they had capacity. And that was a short-term measure while we finish everything else. Um, so, so, so uh, maybe coming back to, yeah. to, 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 to the point in terms of um, the legal matter, we, so the declarator is out there. Now, COVID then happened. A lot of things changed. Uh, even the region, the dynam regional dynamics, some of the companies closed, the new emerging companies. So where we are, we've said, and we've said this publicly to, to even the government, we, we, have no, we don't believe that anyone can run NRZ while in court or fighting with the government. It never works. So it is not in our interest to have this litigation. Um, the, 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 the macroeconomic setting has changed. Uh, we are happy to do anything that allows them to progress. And we still believe in our own capacity if we're given the chance. But what we will not do is to put that amount of effort that we put in without certain clarity in terms of the path that it will take. Because we, we've done that. We've exhausted a lot of people's uh, resources. And, um, you know, and most of the players are now so focused. And the same banks are the banks that are putting money in Nyanza. Well, we wish you all the very best. In any case, there is no doubt that the country and the region needs a working in Arazet. And we hope, hopefully, there's going to be some closure um, uh, to, the, to this matter. Let's move on now, as, as briefly as we may, to um, how do you pronounce it? Akin? Akin. Yeah. Akin. Yeah. You are the founder and CEO of Akin since 2011. Just what's the idea? What's the motivation? So, so it's, it's simply a platform where we, we're running funds. So we managed uh, Anglo's uh, Community Trust Fund, which had about a billion dollars worth of assets. And we were investing on their behalf. Uh, Anglo owned 26% of, uh, well, Sai of, of, Akin. of Akin, and then we bought them out in 2015. Um, and, and the whole idea behind Akin is to give us capacity to package, raise capital, our principal investments. So that's what it does. So you'll find the resources working in Akin. Now they've, they are less so much about fund management. They are more so about getting Nyanza and the projects. Actually, we're working so the focus is on Nyanza at the moment. Focus right now is yeah. we put in everything we have to, towards Nyanza. Mm. So let's, let's proceed now. Um, interestingly, you, you started as a graduate trainee at uh, Engine, uh, and then you moved on to Group 5. When you look back uh, from being an Engine, um, uh, petroleum graduate training 2003-2005. What to you were the key milestones into the person that you've become now? I think there's a few. First job, you really not know, don't know much. You you for some reason you're you believe you know a lot. Uh, you get into positions where you are exposed because you've taken uh, something that you are not. And it happened to me a couple of times at Engine. I remember managing to convince uh, the whole entire, entire senior leadership to present uh, a paper on changing uh, maintenance strategy and philosophy, something I had just done in varsity as a project. <laughs> I, I remember halfway through the meeting, I asked myself, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Because I could see I lost everyone in the meeting and conversation. But out of there, what I what everyone saw was a young man who was ambitious and would not be scared to to fail. Um, PPC, I learned quite a lot around people management, people systems. Funny enough, as an engineer, so I was an operations performance engineer to start. 
And all we were doing is they said, no, we don't want you to focus on engineering things. We want you to focus on what can make people work better as an engineer. Just study people. Yeah. Put people's systems. So PPC had something called the Kambuku system, which was, which was just addressing a, a deliberate attention to people. Uh, and not having conventional HR people dealing with that. So that's what I took from PPC. Then Vesuvius, I think this is... Kambuku is a male, isn't it? An elephant. Elef- oh, it's an elephant. Okay, yes. sorry about that. Well, I, I learned it there. Yeah. So I, they say Kambuku is an elephant. Or we had an elephant. So maybe not an elephant. Mm. Because PPC is a local. Yeah, it's so got an elephant. Is, yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> then Vesuvius is probably where I really became... Interesting. Vesuvius was uh, born out of um, ISCO, the old ISCO, when it started unbundling. Coal went to Exaro, yeah. iron ore went to Kumba. Then the pyrometallurgy or refractory uh, manufacturing side was bought by Vesuvius, which was a Belgian, at least in London Stock Exchange, under Cookson, uh, bought that division. So the first thing that the problem that they have was that they were buying a cost center. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the pricing between a cost center when it's within... A steel, a steel manufacturing operation. So it's the same fights that you saw between us, Amito later on, yeah. and Kumba and Xaro about pricing because it was cost plus, whereas they wanted to go to market driven. So when I got there, um, and I think this, uh, the owners of Vesuvius were very naughty. I'm, I'm 25. They appoint me as general manager with about over 400, a general manager for manufacturing operations. With over 400 people under operations, with six different plants across South Africa, most of them in Oliphant's Fontaine. And uh, I remember my interview was during dinner. Uh, they said, um, we, we want to turn around this operation. So I give my normal, uh, you know, engineering, uh, industrial engineering presentation about turn around. Uh, I've never done all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So, so where are you getting it from? Well, the books. You know? Okay. So, so, and then you, you throw in a little bit of experience here and there. But uh, quite frankly, I, I had no experience. So I get there. And uh, now they start saying, oh, okay, we need to reduce our operating costs. We need to reduce our headcount. And they compare you to an operation in China and India. And you see the numbers and you say, wow. But, you know, you, you, the gift of the gap. You, yeah. You, you say, no, I understand. So we'll do this you talk one. yourself out. <laughs> Three, four months into the job, I'm struggling. Mm. I can't even come up with the numbers to retrench. <laughs> so so if, if what we employed you to do, so I'm in Belgium, having a steak in some restaurant with the guys. They say, give us some update. Where are we? Structuring, turn around. So they say, so I say, so, so, if you're telling us all of these things you can't do, which you are telling us you can, so maybe we must start by firing you. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Belgium. This was a guy called Jake Anderson. Uh, he's a brilliant man, short guy, Scottish guy, but brilliant man. So maybe we should start by removing you. Maybe you are now the problem. So I'd never finished my stake there. And, and they continued with life like nothing happened. Then I fly back. I I I, uh, I think I became a little bit. Uh, that's when I started getting into getting out of the theory, and starting to deal with the real issues. And that's where I rolled my sleeves. And a year later, with my other colleagues, we turned around the operation from loss making, 
to some profit making. What did you learn? What did you learn? You, the hard choices about you, you have to, regardless of the relationships you have with people, when you're running a business sometimes, you have to look beyond the person and look at the hard facts that's required to make the thing work. And that comes with a uh, very tough and personal. I remember even one of the guys that we were trenching holding me by the collar, a big Africana guy. Wanting to beat you up. Wanting to beat me up. You know, so, so, so and because they've only worked at that operation for 30 years. But you're telling them to go. So you're telling them to go. So, so it was, a, it was, I, I, you know, and I, I started getting into numbers. I started, I mean, whatever I do, I'm very hands-on. And I always say, uh, strategy lies in action, out of action. You know, yeah, if you want to know what I'm trying to do, see my footsteps. Because a lot of times people are up there. In, so I've, I've become a very hard nut, bolt, and I know my number. I think I do. And uh, whatever I get into, I get into properly and and, uh, and try to understand it to, to the best I can. So I, le I learned that. And um, what it has helped me with um, today is even when we're building Nyanza, I mean, when I say strategy is not st static, I mean it by whole you know, what it says. If I live here planning to go to my office and center and I've got a path that I, I thought I should use, and then there's a car accident. You've got to turn around and, find, to turn around and find another part. But if you think strategy must be static, you're going to wait in that queue. So, so building Yanza, building all my organizations and operations is, I believe so much in strategy. I believe so much. I, I read a lot of books from, on, on military. I mean, military is one, uh, military books, you know, they're similar to business. The only difference is that one is fatal when things don't work. You die. <laughs> the other one is uh, you might be broke. You might be blacklisted. You might be hungry. You might be hungry. Tell me your choice of um, industrial manufacturing. Your choice of studying engineering um, at 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 NAST. Where did that come from? Do, do you remember where it came from? Was was there somebody who pointed you that direction? Was it something inside of you? So so. During my time, I think, well, firstly, use it got closed. They had strikes. They were closed for a year. But even if it was open, um, they didn't have the degree. The only degree that I, I really considered was metallurgy. But, but NASTA had come up with the curricula at that time, and it was at its peak. I don't know now the economic situation. And uh, NASTA had this, this program that actually spoke to, because I said, I don't want to be a specialist engineer, you know, to be mechanical, electrical, chemical. I want to be able to put all of this together and produce an output, not become a specialist. So, so when I saw the industry and manufacturing, it was a no-brainer. Uh, no one in my family or history knew about that degree. Um, I, 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 uh, I just took the great leap forward and, and I took that. Later on, I, I had to augment that uh, with an MBA from, from Gordon Institute of Business Science, uh, which is part of the University of Pretoria, uh, which helped just close the business acumen and understanding. But with industrial engineering, I think we, you know, I can walk into an engineering or a technical discussion. I can, but then I... You, you know, what, what's, um, 
what I've found interesting that having these conversations is discovering amazing people that have been produced by NAST. What's your assessment of what NAST did for you? It is more about what it didn't do. Uh-huh. <laughs> what's, what's that? It didn't give you the luxuries you got at UZ. Right. You, you had to, there was no accommodation, no residency. You had to come there, you got to figure out where to stay That's in Blue Whale. But you have to be in class at 8 o'clock. You got to find food, you got to cook. We, we used to laugh at each other. Others were called uh, same age boys, meaning carpenter, because they'll be eating uh, matemba, you know, for. <laughs> when, so it made you independent. So, what you would get from a NAS graduate back then was a resourceful people. So it wasn't about the intellect. It was people you can employ and will be resourceful to make it work. Wow. What has life taught you about you? I don't give up. You don't give up? I, don't, uh, I move from failure to failure, and it's okay. Mm. <laughs> it's okay. And um, when you look back, um, Donovan, you've spoken about your grandparents. Um, are they people that have held your hand, pointed yeah. you in the direction that you want to honor as we close? I think there are a lot of people, and uh, I'll not do proper justice, but I would say my grandfather said a lot of calming words to a broken or healing heart, you know, after having gone through what we went through. <clears throat> my grandmother was just there. She was more than a mother. She, you know, you know, Love, pure love, I think grandparents always have unconditional. that. Unconditional love. And then uh, my father's brothers are quite, uh, you know, the late uh, JB. I remember sitting in the Maysville, you know, talking to Rajbagay and stuff and sitting there. And he, he had a way of knowing what I'm thinking internally, but he would find ways of drawing it out. And uh, it was brilliant. Uh, you know, father or uncle. And uh, the remaining sibling uh, was still alive, who celebrated his 80th. He is, um, you know, he's not there to prefer solutions, but he's there just to support you. And you always get this feeling that you've got somebody. So, and then I've got on my mother's side, three of my mother's sisters are still alive in my, my, my mother's uh, brother. Every day, you know, when you're feeling like giving up, what re-inspires me is the way they're looking at my progress. They, they don't see the problems. They see where I've moved from to where I am, and they think where I'm trying to go is to be even easier. So, so all of them play different, uh, with their imperfections, but they, 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 they've played a great role. But my grandfather was, was, remains, the words always are in my head that your time will come. And you teach us that... Um Men have meant something to you? Uh, teachers? Yeah. I was, I was a stubborn young man in school, so I don't, you know, some teachers might not, I don't I get, have good memories. I about get the me. sense that you're still stubborn. I get the sense that you're, you're still no, stubborn. No, I think I just didn't have a place to channel my energies. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, your story is it takes a village to raise a child because your uncles, your grandmother, your grandfather, and everybody else are all looking up to you. Donovan, what an amazing story. Um, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? I, I think I, 
What do you see Nyanza in two years' time? Well, Nyanza is easy. I mean, that I mean that one I can answer very <laughs> Myself, I think that was a very interesting question. <laughs> well, let's start with you and then Nyanza. Uh, let me start with Nyanza and then I'll come to yeah. myself. Uh, Nyanza, we're very clear in terms of our strategy. We're an industrial company uh, building a diversified chemicals business. Uh, uh, we think we can hit $2 billion worth of projects by, at least in pipeline, real pipeline, not wishy-washy stuff. By 2030. By 2030. Um, <clears throat> we'll get this uh, over, over the line. I think the rest, and we're already having conversations with the institutional investors around that. Uh, and that's what attracts them to us because they say, no, we don't want to put all of these resources just for a one-trick pony. You know, we want to build this core as a core competence in a platform to do many. Right. So Nyanza, we think we'll, we'll be able to do that. And we, we already set up a satellite office in the United Arab Emirates. We think in global. We, we, 85% of what we make is sold into the European and uh, Asian markets. So we're already present in some of those markets. I mean, we, right now, as we speak, we co-partnering and exhibiting the European, European Cotton Show in Italy right now. Um, so, so Nyanza, we have a clear strategy. I think we, we just need to, to focus on the, those strategic actions yeah. and, and change where we need to, but heading towards that. And Donovan? Yeah, that one is a bit more challenging. I mean, what I aspired to be a few years ago and what I aspire to be today uh, sort of like changed. Okay. In the past, I used to, I think the guiding policy has always been that what I want to be is a person who's able to influence change for the betterment of the people. Right. Um, so I, I guess that still remains as a guiding philosophy around the big picture. Uh, what I want to be. Now, again, like strategy, maybe what I thought would be the best way to influence that and what I think today are two different uh, parts. So I think if I do well in building this legacy, I think I'll, I'll, I'll be pretty well positioned to help change things for other people. Fantastic. We wish you the best in that dream. you go before we discuss books, eh? Um, uh, what three books have you read that you would want to recommend to our book-loving audience out there? I, I mean, I like reading. Uh, <clears throat> and the reading part didn't come because I love reading. Mm -hmm. It's because I struggle to sleep. Ah. When you have too many problems you're dealing with and you have insomnia, I struggle to put three, four hours wow. continuous of sleep. So if I have a little bit of wine, maybe a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I might find some sleep. Okay. But I still wake up pretty yeah. early. And uh, so I channeled that time to reading. To reading. I, I don't like fictional books. Okay. I don't like... Same here. Uh, feel good books. Yeah. Or make money, get rich, yeah. get whatever yeah. books. I like... Um, I'm, I'm so in tune with things around strategy and management. So... There's a must book I think everyone must read who runs a business. It's called The Art of Action. Okay. That's by Stephen Bangin. That book just clears your mind in terms of how to design an organization and how to transform it, the people in the organization to achieve something. Right. And it's all about clarity. If people are not clear, you'll be pulling in different directions. Right. That's the first one. The second one? Second one is uh, Bargaining with the Devil. 
I've, I've, I had to read that one because I found myself negotiating with people I don't want to negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it always, it always brings me back to, to the conversation rather than the emotions. And what that book teaches me or reminds me all the time is you have to negotiate with your adversaries. They're there. You're here. You mm. all have to find ways to make. So, so, so you have to. That book teaches that. Yeah, the third book. Third one again is um. Well, there's, there's a few. There's one called um. Uh, difficult conversations. So the nice thing about that book is a little bit different from the other books, but again, it's it's almost a similar thread, with with the Bagnum and the Devil, but. Uh, Difficult conversations is about teaching you the, the, the strength to have difficult conversations. Mm. Every time when you hit a difficult conversation, you're about to unlock potential. Yeah. So it, it goes across family disputes and then goes into business, business. disputes, it goes into geopolitical wars, and it uses many examples, you know, in that. But what it teaches you is that how the art of a conversation with an adversary, you must always never leave the table. You must always negotiate. And then the other books. Wow, those, stuff, those, three, yeah. those three books are amazing. Mm -hmm. Donovan, it's just, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I tell you, you know, I'm drawn to people who build stuff, who make things, uh, who are passionate about their vision like you. Um, I mean, you've been pushing this thing for 12 forever. Years. Twelve years is <laughs> still happening. Mm -hmm. We wish you all the very best, and we um, looking forward to, like you said, it's not going to be a one-trick pony. There's going to be lots of them around. So you have our absolute blessing for what you're doing. We wish you all the very best. Th thank you, Trevor. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Allow me to tend to our viewers who are all over the world. Um, remember, we are a weekly show. We are out on YouTube, seven a.m. every Monday. Central African time. To ensure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, please remember to press on this red button and subscribe, like, and share. We've built uh, a website where our podcast sits for your listening pleasure. We view your comments, uh, your suggestions. We love your suggestions as to who should be uh, coming onto the show. Keep them coming. We read your comments. We thank you for those comments. Until next time. Cheers to you all.